0: You know what really makes us mad? Is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah.
1: Tell me about punk!
2: What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley, and I'm actually doing the intro solo today because we forgot to record it, and Dylan can't record today, so... (laughs) I'm introing this episode, but he's on the main episode, so no worries there. This is the show where we assign our guests a year and choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. And today we are talking about the 30th anniversary of Quicksand's Slip, released in 1993 this is a massively important record and one of the most influential post-hardcore albums of all time and we are joined by Casey Iodine from Iodine Recordings to talk about this album Iodine is reissuing the record with a special deluxe book remastered all sorts of really great stuff and Casey talks about that on the show this is a really fun conversation with him And if you want to head over to our Patreon and check out all of our weekly bonus audio, this week I believe we're doing a News of the World, and that is where Dylan and I talk about some of the bigger news stories that have happened over the last couple weeks, as well as what's been going on in our, you know, personal lives. Plus, there's a new release, Friday Audio, every single week, where I talk about four to five albums that came out that week. You can get all of that for one dollar, plus all the back issues. And if you're interested in supporting the show even more, you could go for the $10 tier where you get to choose what album we devote an entire episode to. We've got one of those coming up soon. Excited to do that. Check us out at Punk Lotopod on all the social media Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Email address punklautopod at gmail.com and our voicemail line, which is 202 688 Punk. I think that's everything. So enjoy this conversation with Casey Iodine. We are joined here today with Casey Iodine. The owner operator of Iodine Recordings. Uh, welcome to the show,
0: Casey. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited we were able to do this.
2: Yeah, me too. Uh, it's kind of a kind of a last minute scheduling thing. I think we realized there's an anniversary coming up, and it's like, oh, it's perfect timing to uh, do this episode.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I've been following the show for a while, and when I was thinking about doing some press for recent releases, your show is actually one of the first ones I thought about because you you do these like hyper focused things on a single album which i think was would be perfect for what we're trying to do here
2: we started talking back and forth last year whenever you were trying to get some press out for the orange island reissues and got us in contact with dave gorman on that so we've been talking for a minute there
0: yeah that was a good one
2: yeah dave dave's a uh what would you how would you describe it positively a verbose (laughs) 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 he likes to tell stories and like like talking with him there was just these like oh and this reminds me of another thing that happened and it was just like these (laughs) really cool like oh yeah we played this super tiny club with like the coolest bands in boston ever you know like that kind of stuff
0: yeah dave's a hopeless romantic for that stuff that's why (laughs) i love him
2: yeah so we first heard of you bringing the label back through our good friend paul DeCiccio, who runs Tor johnson records and uh so i guess like the big the big question you usually ask is what does, what made you decide to bring it back after so many years of letting the label stay dormant?
0: Well, for those who aren't familiar, the label started in 96. Um, well, it started as a distro in 96 and then officially became a label in 98 with our first release. And, you know, we we hit the ground running pretty hard and we had a pretty aggressive release calendar back then. And, you know, we we did a lot of records in a very short period of time. And, you know, the label itself, you know, for at least the time period that it was active, it was pretty short lived. You know, we we went under in 2004 and yeah, I can get into that in a little how it ended. But for me, you know, I kind of took a pretty extensive amount of time off to focus on myself and, you know, think about, you know, what what I was going to do with my life and all this stuff like leaving <laughs> music behind. But the honesty the honest thing was i in 17 years not a day went by that i didn't miss being involved with music and that i always hated how things ended you know and i i always wanted a chance to come back and kind of close the book what i didn't realize was that i was going to come back and like open the book in a pretty uh intense fashion um and not know where the end of the book is (laughs) so i mean originally with the rebirth you know my my honest goal was to just kind of revisit some of these records that didn't get the attention they deserved 20 years ago and kind of give them another life but i think that i got sucked up by the enthusiasm for the label coming back and you know really wanted to see how far i could push it and I didn't know that I'd even be here two years later, you know, with almost twenty new releases. Uh, but here we are, and it's been really mind blowing just the response that we've gotten overall.
2: Yeah, so I'll admit my kind of ignorance on iodine. I was not super familiar with the label uh, before the comeback, so I I had to do a little bit of research just to be like, okay, what was he putting out back in the day? And then I was just like shocked to to see which albums were (laughs) were ones that you put out. And I was like, what? He put that that one out? You know, like uh, an incredibly massive record, of course. And then I was was digging deep on that very first release, which was the compilation. And I'm always, I I will always mark out whenever I see this band's name. But that comp features a track from Zagoda. Oh, yeah. And I are big. (laughs) Like, oh,
0: yeah. oh, shit, Zagoda. Oh, hell
2: yeah, this, this band rules. <laughs> Anybody
1: who knows Zagoda is good in my book. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I became good friends with them back then. Um, and the, the cool thing about that comp was I wanted to start a label. Like, I, I personally am not a musician. I have no music talent whatsoever. And, you know, just like I'm sure you guys are with this podcast – starting a label was my idea for how I could contribute to the scene, you know, how I could, you know, do something, you know, in this, this world that really mattered to me and, you know, meant a lot to my upbringing. And so, you know, like I said before, the label started as a distro, you know, I, this is, again, we're talking pre-internet, right? This is like the mid nineties. Yeah. So, you know, we had a catalog, we'd mail out, you know, hundreds of catalogs and people would, order lps and seven inches from the catalog and uh it was always funny because people would mail cash in an envelope you know and secured um, cash (laughs) we'd have these little order forms that you know you'd have to list alternatives just in case i didn't have whatever (laughs) you were ordering in stock right it was a crazy time in music and so you know when the idea to make it a like a full-fledged label came about i didn't really know where to start and so You know again i'm sure you guys have talked about this before but especially in the 90s the underground punk stuff especially that real heavy aggressive stuff was not being played on the radio at all Mm -hmm. and so comps were the way to find out about new music and through the distro and through booking shows in boston i had become friends with you know a ton of bands and i just started reaching out to them one by one and saying hey i'm gonna start a label this is what I'm thinking about, you know, doing with this comp. And immediately, you know, I had bands like Converge and Kaven and you know, yeah. a bunch of other like pretty notable bands just donating new tracks to this thing. And it, and it's interesting because Converge was pretty big at that time. Um, but Kaven was a new band, relatively speaking. You know, even bands like Catharsis or Zagoda, like they they were really at that, that the beginning stages. Um, Jerome's Dream another example like it was one of their first demo tracks that was on that album and just by chance a lot of the bands on that comp ended up growing into being you know pretty established well-known well-loved bands that you know had long yeah. careers ahead of them and so it kind of laid the groundwork for us that um, people started to take notice of the name and the and the label and you know, we, signed a few bands orange island being the first band we ever signed but it was soon after that like you know we had a lot of bands just kind of like lining up looking to to work with us and we just like got lucky with with some of the bands that signed you know brand new being a pretty notable one and then smoker fire and gregor samsa i mean it was you know at the time those bands weren't big yet And it was interesting that, like, even years after the label ended, some of those bands continued to grow and grow and grow. And so the label probably ended up becoming becoming more notable after we ended, if that makes sense. You know, Uh, yeah, one of
2: those. um, Oh, this is the label where those bands came from, like one of those kind of
0: historical labels.
2: Yeah. You, You touched on the I love the idea of being like you're not a musician so your ability to contribute to the scene was by doing a label or a distro to begin with and that is one of the things that i've always felt like i personally like i've been in a band before a couple bands before but like i don't consider myself a musician or like a someone who actually i haven't touched my bass in 10 years probably so you know like (laughs) and i've always felt that my calling was more to like writing about bands talking about bands like just learning as much as i can and sharing as much as i can about those you know bands that i love that i feel like don't get the attention or appreciation so starting a label has always been that like dream scenario like i've never been to a point where i could actually do it myself but it's like well i'm gonna put my taste in music out you know like the stuff that i like by bands that i think people need to pay attention to so i always identify with that
0: yeah and i'm you know Glad you touched on that because I think one thing that I've always envisioned iodine as a label to be is that it's always been a reflection of my taste in music. And I think some people look at what we do and it looks schizophrenic, right? It's all over the map. There's like really heavy, aggressive music. There's pop punk, there's indie stuff, there's emo stuff. And the reality is like, I don't judge any band or any album just based off of what it's supposed to be. I just base it on whether or not I like it. And I've always stuck to that. And I've always only released records that I resonate with or work with bands that I resonate with because as a label, you need to be excited about that music if you're going to promote it and market it and tell people, hey, you should listen to this. People only have so much time and so much money. And so I, I've always truly believed that the label has to be 100% behind it And it's not just stuff you're putting out because you think it's what people want to hear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And that's something I've always valued over everything else. Like I, I don't care if it's the biggest record in the world or the most underground band that no one's ever going to hear of. It always comes back to, I like this and I believe in it and I'm going to give it the best shot I can.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like you take your platform and kind of broadcast this lesser known band or, you know, they haven't done a tour yet, but I think once they do, people really dig them. I mean, that's I. good things come from constantly sharing and shouting out everybody that you enjoy. I, I, th- I personally think I always like yeah. when labels have,
1: you know, they don't have a unified aesthetic of like these are these bands all sound the same because, you know, we're obviously like trying to follow a trend or you know, I like when there's just a variety of like this is good and we should put it out and. I think that says a lot about the quality of what the label is putting out when you're saying, when you can clearly tell that it's like, this is special. It needs to be out and not just, this is in the moment.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the three labels that iodine was modeled after, and I'm sure a lot of labels say this or have a similar assortment, but Sub Pop, Discord, and Jade Tree. And I think the cool thing about all three of those labels is that you know, the proprietors or the people who run them, it always comes back to what they feel is worth putting forward. It's worth putting their logo on because at the end of the day, you know, as a label, when you put your, your logo on the back of a record, you are saying to anyone who's going to listen to it, like we support this and we believe in it and we think it's worth your time or your money. And I hope, and I, you know, it, it's hard cause we don't like directly engage with fans that, frequently like you'd be surprised we get messages every once in a while on on instagram and stuff but you know i i really do hope that people see the logo and go hey i'm gonna check that out because that's how i was you know i would see a discord logo or a Tree logo and i would buy a record site or not site unseen but uh you know unheard you know (laughs) sitting on the record shelves just because i knew that everything they put out was worth my time to check out if that makes sense
2: yeah, you it's know. like a almost like a seal of approval. Like you you learn to trust a brand almost to the point where you're like, "Hey, Asian Man Records is pretty good, consistently releasing music." I don't know this one. I'll check it out. You yeah. know, you you'll take a chance on it. You might yeah. not love it, but there's a chance that you'll be happy you heard it at least. Mm-hmm.
1: I Absolutely. Like, with yeah. those kinds of lips.
2: Yeah. Um. So it's funny. It feels like your it, your output now is bigger than. The original run right it seems like the discography
0: yeah we we did uh 15 or 16 releases uh when we were in our first run yeah and we just pulled catalog number 45 so we are now uh three times (laughs) the number of releases um since the beginning so again this none of this was planned i i mean i you know you mentioned Tor johnson and You know, Paul and Tor were kind of how Iodine, you know, the the comeback really came about. Paul had reached out to me because he wanted to put out the There Were Wires uh, final album, Somnambulists. Mm. And, you know, I had been thinking about the label for a number of years and bringing it back and how I would bring it back. And when Paul reached out to me, I didn't want to say no to Paul, (laughs) but it was this catalyst of like, well, maybe this is the calling I need to make something happen. And Paul was, you know, honestly just crucial to making it happen because I I hadn't been in the music industry for 17 years. I didn't know how to press a record. I didn't know how to do, (laughs) you know, the logistics for it. And, you know, he and I worked together to get this thing out. And in my mind, I was like, okay, I'll do this. And I had one or two more releases that I had been toying with in my mind. And we did the Jerome's Dream record shortly after that. And it was like the interest in the label just like skyrocketed. And before I knew it, I had artists knocking on my door saying, I'm glad you're back. I'd love to work with you. And some examples would be uh, Jonah Matrenga from Far and One Line Drawing. And then uh, Nathan Gray from Boy Sets Fire. And um, I mean, just these... Or, you know, Jolie Lindholm from Rocking Horse Winner and Steve Klesav from Shy I mean, it was like all these like very like established artists that knew the label. They trusted the brand. They, they, they knew the work ethic that we had. And before I knew it, I like had more releases than I knew what to do with. Um, and so in a very short period of time, the label went from, OK, this is going to be a, a hobby reissue label to I guess we're doing it and we're going full steam ahead and this will either be a beautiful thing or it's going to crash and burn in a spectacular fashion. And um, like I said, here we are a few years later and it just seems to continue to resonate with people. And it, Like, I can't tell you how happy that makes me feel.
2: Yeah, like those are the type of people that they're like, hey, I want to put out a record with you that you're like, well, I can't say no because, you know we got the Shilu drummer in this band, you know, we need to do this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, again, it's not even just the namesake, like Jonah, when he brought me the record that he had, you know, just recorded, I, I mean, I was blown away. You know, Mm -hmm. I was like, this thing deserves to be record of the year. You know, uh, the Darling Fire, same thing. They, they had sent me demos of their new album and, I I couldn't say no I was like this is this is a record that I would buy and this would be on my album of the year list which it was you know a few people had made fun of me that my album of the year was a record I put out but the reality is it would be even if it wasn't on my label I mean that's how much I stand behind these releases so you know it it, people made it very hard for me to uh, say no and Um, I'm glad that it happened the way it did because, you know, I feel like I'm getting a second chance at this thing. And, you know, it's become something a lot bigger than it ever was before.
2: Well, I think this segues literally perfectly into one of the biggest records you may have possibly ever been involved with uh, handling. So it's no secret. You can read the title of the episode. Dylan and I told you what we're talking about today on the show. We're talking about slip by quicksand and iodine is reissuing the 30th anniversary of that record and the number one question i have is how did that happen
0: uh it was a long process um this started shortly after the label came back so it's been two years in the making and there's actually no concise way to tell this story. So I'm just <laughs> going to give you like the, you know, the the big talking points. But, you know, me um, and my business partner, who's uh, Joe Grillo from Garrison or uh, Her Head's on Fire, mm-hmm. he and I were talking and we're just thinking like, OK, let's do something big. Like, let's find a record that deserves to be documented and archived and not not just Pressed on vinyl, you know, some labels do these reissues and like, you know, no offense to any labels, but you know, it looks like a cash grab, right? It's like, okay, we're gonna press a million of these and throw them out in the world and we're done.
2: Um on record store day. On and- yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and and again, no offense. I mean, labels are businesses, they, yeah. they have to operate, but for us, it was, you know, let's let's pick a big release that we can put the iodine mark on. And let's do it right you know let's do a full you know archival project you know we document a release we, we we get the history of it and we present it in a way that the fans would want it right so like we're thinking about the the end user of this product right that a fan would get this release and want for nothing right everything they could possibly need is there And we sort of tested the waters with the Stretch Armstrong reissue, you know, by doing, you know, getting commentary from a lot of notable artists and collecting old photos and old posters. Quicksand was a beast. (laughs) I mean, like we we knew from the beginning that we wanted it to be a book. And actually, I should back up a little. We Quicksand specifically, we didn't even know if the record was available and we had to reach out to uh, universal and polydor and find out if anyone owned the license and you know if you've ever dealt with major labels you know that it's a very slow tedious process but we we found out that the license was free and available and you know we had to take out a loan to to buy the license and and go through that whole rigmarole. and we reached out to the band and their management and explained to them our intentions and you know they were excited to see that like someone wanted to do it but not just put it out on vinyl but to actually take the time to put in all these extras and you know and really document it. So with the book <laughs> this thing started over a year ago and after we had the license and in my head I could always visualize what I wanted it to be but in reality, you know, we're talking about 1993, right? 30 years ago and we're like okay, photos. You know, we go to the band <laughs> You know, hey, guys, what photos do you have from that era? No one had anything (laughs) like like nothing. You know, if you went to their parents' houses, checked, you know, basements and attics, nothing. Um, Wow. Wow. So we started reaching out to photographers and people who archive, you know, old posters and stuff. And you would be shocked at how little we got back at first. I mean, it was just so tedious to get like one original poster And you can find scans and stuff online, but they were so low quality that it wasn't really going to, you know, do what we wanted to do. And the book project got thrown in the garbage at least four times throughout (laughs) this entire thing because I I didn't want it to look half-assed. I mean, I didn't want, you know, to have this big thing and we have to put a price tag on it and someone gets it and they're disappointed because there's only like six photos or there's, you know... Uh, some really low res poster files or poster pictures that you know they can find online, and it wasn't until we got in touch with Tom at Man alive Creative, um, who, if you're not familiar with him, he did the Misfits book, uh, he did the Snapcase book, he's done archival work for the Beastie Boys. I mean, his catalog is just wild when you when you dig into it, and. This is his specialty. Like, he does these archival projects, and you know, he's of the right age that he knows the right people. And he had just finished the Snapcase book uh, about a month prior to us reaching out to him. So, he had some contacts just kind of at the top of his email list, and he came on as the project manager, and it was like opening the floodgates. I mean, before we knew it, we had more artwork and photographs and content than we could ever deal with and it just took on a life of its own at that point
2: it's funny that like a band who like played literally hundreds of shows had nothing of their own to be like here you go here's some photos we had of our tour in you know japan you know like something.
0: <laughs> i tell you you would be shocked and i deal with this more frequently than you would you could think i mean when you're in the moment and if you think about any projects that you've done never do you think like oh this is going to be important in 30 years right, right. like no one thinks that way um, i mean if you do there's probably something seriously wrong with you right <laughs> yeah. like you you need to get your ego in check but uh <laughs> you know it in the moment no one thinks to save things i mean god i i don't i didn't save anything from the label from 20 years ago you know i there's stuff that I wish I had. I mean, I didn't, there's releases I don't even have like yeah. in my own, you know, collection. So, you know, finding these photographers, you know, and then finding, you know, having them search their archives for film, right? Cuz again, we're we're way pre-digital at this point, right? Yeah. They're <laughs> like,
1: "Oh, do I have uh, negatives from <laughs> 95, <laughs> yeah. 94?"
0: You know, and some of the best contributors to this weren't even like, you know, music industry established people. We're talking like, you know, hardcore collectors that just happen to have a pile of quicksand T-shirts that are like neatly packed in like (laughs) preservation boxes and stuff. Right. But there are a few people that we really struck out with. And one was John Mockus, who was the band's photographer in the 90s, toured with them, traveled with them, had amazing archives. Uh, Melinda Beck, who did all of their, uh, album art, their t-shirt designs, she had sketchbooks, you know, filled with original art from, from the band. We got in touch with a few, uh, concert poster designers, you know, who did very, you know, you know, old format, you know, uh, paintings and stuff for, you know, uh, you know, like Warp Tour and things like that. And, um, you know, and some of these people like, you know, they don't have Instagram profiles. They don't have Facebook pages. And we just, you know, cast a wide net and we were able to find them. And, you know, they were more than excited to, to have their art published in a book. Um, so, you know, aside from the book, I mean, the book, I think, is really the centerpiece to all this. But the other thing that I really wanted to do is I didn't want to press the vinyl from a CD, you know, audio. Yeah, I was like, you know, let's go to Universal. Let's let's go in the vault and let's find the original reels. Uh, And this is the sort of thing that was like kid in a candy store, you know, and we were able to recover the original reels. And, you know, if you guys aren't aware, like half of Universal's uh, archives went burned up in a fire a number of years ago and the quicksand reels were saved. Right. that's amazing huge
1: i was <laughs> when you said going to get original reels i was just like oh shit
0: because yeah.
1: <laughs> i was just i i was immediately thought of that because universal is because that's uh what what are the dear you is one of the like big famous like punk records that is just original masters are gone they don't yep. they were burned
0: yep yeah i mean and we fingers crossed you know when we went there we wanted to you know obviously we didn't know for sure they had them and we were just like blown away that, A, they had them, and B, that, you know, we could, you know, if you know the process, but you have to, like, get them baked. You never know if they're going to stay preserved and all this stuff. And, you know, uh, our mastering engineer, who's Jack Shirley from uh, Atomic Garden, you know, he got the reels, you know, got them uploaded, and we brought those masters up to current standards using, you know, the current technology and i tell you when you listen to these two albums side by side the original 93 release and the one that's about to come out people are going to be blown away and we didn't change anything like you know it, some people get touchy because they're, they're used to that sound right but it just sounds big and it sounds deep and it's like you can hear the intricacies of like sergio's bass lines that you could not hear previously um, because in in the in '93, I don't know what it was, but every producer and every mastering engineer like compressed that shit as much as they possibly could, <laughs> you know. And they jacked up, you know, the that I, don't, I like to call it like the tin sound, right? Like it, um, everything. The treble was jacked up as high as it could go, and so you know, I think that people are going to be really, really blown away just by the audio. And again, these are the things that like. You know, people don't necessarily see in the end product, but we we painstakingly took the time to make sure that we did it right and that we were putting forth a product that is worthy of a 30th anniversary and that it's preserved in a way that, you know, people are going to be, you know, happy with and have in their collection.
2: When I read that uh Jack Shirley did the remaster for it, I was like, I have to hear that. I have to hear what he does to this record. Because like you said, the production on the original version of it, it is good and it sounds big for a, a 93 record for sure but you can also hear the bones of what could be blown up to like an incredible you know production sound with a more modern technology so I'm I'm dying to hear that because Jack Shirley is an awesome awesome producer and engineer
0: yeah, he's incredible and he's someone that you know has become a close friend and I, I really trust him on you know projects like this and yeah, again, I think that the the thing that people will see or, you know, hear is the depth and, you know, the warmth of the album, you know, the way that it was always meant to be felt without changing the structure of it.
2: Well, let's go ahead and plug where people can get that now. Um <laughs> So that they can go right away and go like, okay, let me go pre-order this and then we'll talk about the record. <laughs> so it is currently available is it through Death Wish?
0: Yes, although I I, I will pause you for one sec because it is 99% sold out um, oh, wow. just about everywhere. Um, the book, there's still a handful of copies left. Um, those are limited to 2,000 copies. I I don't expect them to last more than another week, but mm-hmm. Uh, all the other vendors that I've seen are sold out of like the, the, the standard vinyl across the board. Uh, but we are going to be putting up a second press, hopefully, you know, within the next month or so. So, you know, at iodinerecords.com you should be able to find wherever it's available when it becomes available.
2: Yeah. Well, in case it is completely sold out by then, is there a release date for digital? Is there a streaming version that will be available for us to hear?
0: yes and no so we did not get digital rights to this um Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because everyone needs to hear the remaster yeah but if you buy the vinyl you'll get a digital download code with the vinyl yeah so you can get the you can get the remastered lossless version all right well
2: hopefully there's still some copies by the time uh
0: (laughs) the episode goes up but if not, but we're we're gonna keep this in press. This is this is not going to be a one and done. Um, good. Yeah. You know, we're gonna keep it in press for the length of the license, just because this record deserves to be available. You know, we're we're not looking to put it out and cash out. I mean, this again, we're not doing this for sales. We're doing this because we believe this record should be available to people.
2: Yeah. It feels like a truly archivist approach that you've taken to this that you don't get a ton of in hardcore and punk and stuff like that you get you tend to get it in like big label stuff you know you know a miles davis special edition with a book and all this other stuff you know like that stuff's cool but we don't get that in punk and hardcore nearly enough so it's it's amazing that uh all of this has come together to i, I can't wait to see it honestly
0: yeah i know i appreciate that and i think that's that's where my passion is is um making these releases feel as special as they can
2: absolutely well we've talked about it a little bit and before we get into the actual guts of the record and the music and everything involved in that this record was released in 1993, and if you know us, we like to talk about the the grander context of when a record comes out. So um, let's take a minute and look at some of the other albums that came out in 1993.
0: It was uh, a busy
2: year. Yeah. <laughs> what stands out to you right away?
0: I mean, I mean again, the elephant in the room is Nirvana in utero right. and um, Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, like two just iconic albums you know that just kind of coincided with uh with the quicksand release
2: and you know in a way like i don't know i don't think it's out of order to be like slip is the in utero or siamese dream of like post-hardcore like i it it is as important to the genre as those records are to their respective genres you know
0: yeah i think it's it's like uncanny you know, the types of releases that were coming out even a year before. Um, but it there was just some sort of, like, sea change in music, right? I mean, everyone always attributes Nirvana as, like, okay, everything changed after Nirvana. But there was stuff going on simultaneously that wasn't even touched by Nirvana, right? I mean, heck, you know, you have uh, In on the Kill ticker by Fugazi coming out the same year, right? And um, uh, it just you know bands like quicksand are coming up you know their influence was new york city hardcore you know and when you listen to walter and what the influences that went into slip it was mostly like uk shoegaze bands so i mean their their approach was unique you know the path was unique from any other band that was out there at the time dylan what are
2: some notable 93 albums that you you see here um, I'm trying to remember
1: what we've talked about before. Um, we did that Seam record, didn't we?
2: Uh, we did, yes. That is the Seam record that we covered on the show. And uh, if you give me a second, I'll edit around this, and I'll pull up with the other records we did from 93. Uh, I know we talked about How to Clean Everything by Propaganda. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a, a pretty significant record. We have also done Four by Seaweed. We did Breaking Things by All... We did get fired by the smoking popes and yeah, that those are the 93 records that we have covered on the show before Casey, you were pointing out the, uh, the drop dead album that came out that year before we recorded.
0: Yeah, I, it, for some reason, like I, again, I'm, I think about my days in new England and drop dead's influence. And I, I was only ever in one band and drop dead was like our biggest influence. We wanted to be drop dead. Um, <laughs> So I, I guess I always kind of attributed them more to mid-90s. But, yeah, I mean, they go back to, I think, 89 or somewhere, 88 even. Yeah,
2: Yeah, they were called uh, cost from 89 to
0: 91. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, again, you know, I when you think about punk rock and, um, you know, at least in the more aggressive forms, you know, Drop Dead were kind of one of a kind. I mean, I, I think they started an entire movement in that sort of new genre of music i think doom in the uk may have predated them just slightly but i mean drop dead obviously took it to like the next level when, when we're talking about aggression
2: yeah and like maybe the gauze in japan before that it oh, yeah. would be the yeah. other like pre-predecessor but yeah drop dead was more influential for what came out of the states as far as oh like tragedy or you know um,
0: His Hero's Gone. Yeah,
2: His Hero's Gone, yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah, I dropped it. Th- that record is fucking, still, to this day, amazing. That record yeah. is so good. I've lis- I listened to that, I think I probably listened to that for the first time
1: a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that 93? Really? <laughs> yeah. This? That's wild. Cause, and I mean, like, you know, like, Grindcore had existed, but, you know, previously, and there were crust bands before, but there's nothing like that. It's that's a real unique turning point in uh, in punk in the early nineties.
0: Yeah, for sure. I looking at this list. The other thing that jumps out at me is uh, Radiohead, Pablo Honey. I mean, again, you know, something was in the water <laughs> this year because I mean, there's so many just like legendary albums that came out. You know, simultaneously, like, it. It just blows my mind.
2: Yeah, there has to be. You know, Dylan and I always talk about this too. There's There are just these years that are absolutely massive and you can't really figure out what it was exactly that made it the way it was because you can look on either side of that same year and be like, eh, there's some good stuff, but they weren't like the same, le- you know, ground shattering years that like a 93, I'd say 94 is another one for different kinds of punk music, more like Green Day and what happened with all of that explosion and then like ninety-seven was is another one that's really big for like emo explosion in the 2000s I feel like is another really good it's just like it's not every single year in the nineties it's just some years are like monstrous compared to others. And 93 it is se- definitely one of those.
0: It seems like ninety three kicked off like the um the you know alternative music boom, you know, especially mm-hmm. what we saw on MTV. Um you know, Headbangers Ball and uh, 120 Minutes and, you know, even Beavis and Butthead. I mean, it, it was really at that height of like MTV's sort of peak influence on, you know, just not mainstream rock music. And, you know, I think that a lot of these albums and a lot of these bands' success was literally tied to MTV's influence, right? I mean, take it or leave it whether you like mtv or not but you can never deny that they were just so instrumental in driving this you know uh, you know i personally don't love the term alternative but like really you know heavier more interesting music out to the world i don't think there's ever been a singular entity that was able to do that simultaneously
2: yeah Alternative is this kind of catch-all term that really, I feel like it applies better on a macro scale. Like, you're definitely going to be like, 80s, new wave, you know, hardcore, you know. 90s, you're like, alternative was the thing, you know. So it's, once you get granular into what, like, a band actually sounds like, you know, you try and explain, like, what is alternative really? It it could be anything, really. But, yeah, yeah. I feel like it more is representative of an era. I think 93
1: is a really good year for seeing how willing people are to listen to really unusual bands because um, there's there's really significant unique records and bands that come out. There's a variety too. It's not all like aggressive and noisy like there's a must record and there's like a Rev, you know a significant Reverend Horton Heat record and <laughs> you know so there's but it's really really iconoclastic, I guess. Is maybe the way to put it like very, very individual bands.
0: Well, I mean, and to touch on that point, you know, Bjork debut came out in 93. And, you know, if you think about it a few years earlier, there's no way that Bjork could have had an impact because a few years earlier it was, you know, eighties pop music was dominating the charts or it was, you know, hair bands. Right. So it, again you know it was just this massive shift towards you know kind of uh, people being way more open with what they were listening you know willing to listen to and the tricky thing is is like it wasn't just underground music i mean these bands hit the mainstream in a way that like was not possible a few years prior a lot of these bands were active previously but they were very underground you know they were not. They were selling hundreds of records, not thousands of records. Yeah. And what was Bjork was in what the Sugar Cubes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I was in Iceland recently, and I went to the the punk rock museum in Iceland. Which, if you ever go, it's a pretty cool spot. <laughs> but you know, like the Sugar Cubes were playing in Europe or, or Iceland, even to like you know, ten people. I mean, it yeah. was not a huge thing. Like we remember it as it being important. But the reality is like they struggled just like any other punk band would, you know, in this day and age.
2: And yeah, it's obvious because like the sugar cubes weren't like massive in the U.S., you know, when they're an active band. So, yeah, I wonder, too, because of MTV being such a big force for discovering new music for a lot of people, I bet it comes from just being like, look, we got program hours to fill, so we're going to have whole shows dedicated to, you know. The type of music the beeves and Butthead often covered was heavier. Like 120 minutes is going to do all your, your more like indie and punk related stuff too. And it's just like we got hours to fill. Let's, all right. The production's good enough. We'll throw it on there, you know. And so it just helped people of an entire generation to be like, oh, okay. I'll check out this band that I've literally never heard of before I saw the video.
0: I I remember you know begging my parents to stay up late to watch headbanger's ball you know cuz it, mm. it was on at what midnight or something yeah. like that i mean it was real late but yeah i think you hit the nail on the head like mtv's filling program hours and it's like all right we'll we'll give uh this show an hour at midnight cuz no one else is awake except for metalheads apparently <laughs> um, <laughs> but i mean when you think about uh, uh 120 minutes i mean i would watch that show religiously and i would run out and listen to every band that was on that show and you know uh Matt Pinfield has actually become a friend of mine um wow. yeah and he he contributed to the Quicksand book uh he wrote a nice uh, retrospective piece about the album because he's a fan of it but uh when i became friends with him he was someone that like i you know was like look like you are almost singularly responsible for <laughs> exposing me to music that i don't know that i would have ever found otherwise and, you know, I, I almost attribute like where I am today and running a label to that era of MTV and, you know, what they did to kind of open people's minds.
2: Yeah. And I guess they decided that uh, they're just going to fill the programming hours now with just ridiculousness on loop for. <laughs> in reality. Times change.
0: Times change. Yeah. <laughs> chase, chase the mighty dollar. <laughs>
2: Well, let's get into the record itself. So I've got a couple stats. And um, like we said, we are talking about Slip by Quicksand. Formed in New York City in 1990. All the members of Quicksand had played in bands in New York prior to this, such as the Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, and Bold, probably the most notable bands they were all involved with. They released their debut self titled EP on Revelation Records in 1990, and they began touring nationally and in Europe, which led to the band signing to Polydor Records in 1992. So Slip was released February 9th, 1993, on Polydor. The personnel. Actually, yes, the day we're recording this, it is the 30th anniversary of the release date of Slip. I knew we timed it, but I didn't realize we timed it that
0: well. (laughs) I didn't realize until this morning when I woke up and I was like, oh man, today's the 30th. Crazy.
2: So the person on this album is Walter Schreifels on vocals and guitar, Tom Capone on guitar, Sergio Vega on bass, and Alan Cage on drums. And the album was produced by Stephen Hagler and Don Fury. And Hagler was known for producing more rock-centric, major-label type stuff. He's worked on albums by Clutch, Muse, Fuel, Sam I Am, and uh, Jimmy's Chicken Shack. Had to include that one in there.
0: And the Pixies, uh, most notably, I think.
2: It's funny, I, the notes I looked at didn't bring them up, but uh, yeah, that's that's a humongous band to be working with. <laughs> Which record? Uh,
0: I knew you were going to ask, I th- i think it was doolittle but i will need to check
2: Let's double check and
0: doolittle so
2: he engineered oh he's an engineer on it okay. okay yeah 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 which is also incredibly important so yeah engineered the doolittle he did have a ton of engineering credits but i only went through the producer credits so that's 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 wild i bet the band had the producer credits on that record but uh gil norton was the, the producer on doolittle So, we also have Don Fury, who we actually just talked a little bit about Don Fury on our episode on Spark Marker, because he produced that record a few weeks ago. So, if you want to hear us talk about that, go check it out. Um, So, for context, around the same time he was working with the likes of Snapcase, Agnostic Front, Warzone, and Gigi Allen. So, that's a fun batch of individuals (laughs) to be working
0: with. Fun little Um, aside about um, Don Fury is he... We got in touch with him for the book and he provided uh, some content for the book and we were going back and forth for a while. And we were looking for some more visual aspects, you know, something beyond just photos and posters and stuff like that. And it was this Hail Mary email that I sent to him and I said, is there any chance you have any handwritten notes from like the studio session with quicksand and no joke, five minutes later, he sends me back a photograph of the uh tracking sheet from head to wall and he's like yeah this was sitting on my desk so like i just i imagine like don fury's desk to be like piled with just like nonsense that goes back 30 years (laughs) and he just happened to have a tracking sheet from uh from quicksand just sitting on a pile somewhere
1: oh i just saw that uh the other day wait where'd it go
2: Yeah, it's like it's uh, an archaeology archaeological dig where you've got these different layers of like, oh, this is from the mid 90s.
1: It's just like grocery lists and <laughs> old receipts and things jammed in there.
2: So uh, normally I I tend to ask what made you choose this album for us to talk about? And there's a pretty obvious reason why <laughs> why you wanted to talk about it. But so let me say what made you choose this album to try and remaster and tackle and do this whole project with?
0: Well, I think, you know, when we first started talking about it, you know, my initial thought was I want to do something, you know, archival that's big, um, but I would love to have the opportunity to do it with one of my favorite records. And, you know, I kind of just went through my list and, you know, Fugazi is in the top slot. Okay, I'm never going to be able to put out a Fugazi (laughs) record, like as long as Ian MacKay is alive, right? I mean, (laughs) it's not going to (laughs) happen. He's got it. (laughs) Yeah, he's got it it covered. (laughs) Number two on the list is Quicksand. And, you know, this album has been beyond influential to me musically. I I think that my personal interest in music and, you know, what genres I like is is very diverse. But I would say when it comes to heavy music, most things kind of fall into this post-hardcore sort of realm. And Quicksand in my personal opinion, literally wrote the book on post-hardcore, and I, I would argue that any band that has come out, you know, that calls themselves post-hardcore has just been trying to recreate what Slip did, and, you know, it's uh, from start to finish, every track just hits hard, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know what else there is more to say other than that, you know, it's just It's iconic in its own way, and I, you know, I just feel so lucky that we were able to preserve it, you know, the way that we did.
2: Um, Dylan, I'm trying to figure out how to segue into this with you. Um, So, regular listeners of the show have known that Dylan likes to poke fun at Quicksand, and I have never quite figured out why (laughs) he does that.
0: Let's hear it.
1: (laughs) This is my this is my dissenting opinion. corner (laughs) and i think that this is kind of i guess this is like breaking kayfabe i guess or something like it's it's been more of a bit Mm. i think Uh, (laughs) if i'm honest with myself it has really been more of a bit my dislike of quicksand is not like my dislike of weezer or uh, (laughs) i'm trying to think of the bands that i've historically just been like i'm i hate them or you know whatever um And I kind of and I actually I couldn't even really pinpoint the I don't really know where the origin of the bit is of my contrarian take on quicksand (laughs)
2: because it it definitely comes across as like and who wants to listen to quicksand is like what (laughs) what is your beef with that like (laughs) massive record (laughs) everyone everyone wants to listen to quicksand
1: (laughs) and I, I think that's where it is I think that's where it lies is there was a brief moment there were a couple of years I felt like within kind of the the echo chamber of Tumblr. I want to <laughs> pinpoint it as a Tumblr phase of hardcore where Quicksand was a regular name and this record was a regular topic of conversation. And I do remember listening to it and I think it's kind of tied with a similar fascination with rival schools that certain category of punk had And it was so it was kind of like a Walter thing. It was like, well, all right, he's he's got a sound and it didn't really resonate with me then. And I definitely listened to that to like quicksand and rival schools in conjunction, just kind of like trying to tackle that. Like, this is a really important figure within punk. And I think there was a period where people were trying to cite a quicksand influence that I really wasn't actually hearing. And I think that's where the disconnect lies. And people were talking about Slip as being really influential. But then I was listening to these bands and they didn't sound like Slip. And I think that's where the seeds are. (laughs) (laughs) I have absolutely listened to Slip many times and enjoyed it. Maybe not consistently front to back on the level that other people do. But throughout most of its runtime, I'm just like, that's a good riff. I'm into this. That's cool. I like bands like this. I want more bands like this. Uh, and then that—that's the thing—is there's never really been they—they they didn't really do it. We didn't have this worship. I, I can respect effects.
0: that, honestly. And I, and I think that like I feel like there's certain bands that hold a um, a position where it's like almost sacrilege to to talk down on them. And you know I I would say there's no band that is perfect, right? And there's Fugazi songs that I don't like, you know, and like right. you know it's the reality. And I think that. With some music, and I don't know how old you are, but I assume we're of a similar age. And sometimes it's the time and place that you discover a band and, you know, and where you are personally at that time in life, because there are people that come to me frequently with bands that are notable from uh, the mid 2000s. And I cannot for the life of me find out what is appealing about it. But it it was not it didn't come about at a time that was formative for me, right? So I don't really have any sort of connection to the period that it came about. And similarly, there's records I like from the '90s when I was sort of like in my musical upbringing that I still resonate with. That you know are not looked upon favorably <laughs> because you know or whatever reason, you know. <laughs> or it, but you know, I think Quicksand is one of those bands that really they they changed a lot because they they came from new york hardcore which has a very specific aggressive sound and they did something you know that again you know fell more into that alternative world or even you know kind of the the post-metal world but the roots were hardcore music Mm-hmm. and that aggressiveness comes through in their music and i think that when you hear bands say you know to touch on your point oh we're influenced by quicksand but they sound absolutely nothing like quicksand the band that comes to mind immediately is cave who like has you know repeatedly noted quicksand as like one of their biggest influences and where i would draw that connection is quicksand was not afraid to do something that was just totally different and different from what anyone would expect when you when we started the show you mentioned uh you know where they all came from right uh gorilla biscuits youth of today you know and when you combine all those bands you don't expect quicksand to come out right and we take a band like cave in similarly they did something that combined you know hardcore and metal and space rock and all these other things and I don't want to say they were the first to do it because they weren't, but they didn't care. They weren't trying to create music that fit neatly in a box that people were expecting. And I would even argue that like a band like cave in continued to push the envelope and every record was so wildly different than any other one that they did to me. That's where I almost see the influence is like, you know, we're just going to create what we want from the influences that are, are vast and I'm, I'm sitting here now looking at the book um, and Walter Schreifel's forward, and when he talks about his influence for Slip, you know, it's not really what you would expect. He doesn't list a single hardcore band in here. He mean he lists Public Enemy, you know, yeah. uh, UK Shoegaze, and... Uh, something else in here that really jumped out at me and i'm not going to be able to find it which is not good for radio but um, <laughs> you know i i think that you know the the point being i mean he he names for right which i think you can draw a clear line there oh my bloody valentine right like mm-hmm. which he notes is one of the biggest influences for for this record it sounds nothing like a my bloody valentine record but i think that it's the thinking of we're going to create something that's sonically pleasing to us and it draws from all these different places and we're looking at these bands like my bloody valentine or even you know public enemy who just said you know fuck the mainstream i'm just gonna we're gonna make something that we want to make Sorry, I went I, off on a tangent there. I don't even know if like this is what we're talking about. but
2: <laughs> I,
1: I'm glad you mentioned the My Bloody Valentine influence because it is one of those things where you wouldn't see it on first listen to it. But if you're, if you're familiar with Shoegaze from the time period and you're familiar with Hardcore from the time period, it, you kind of put it together on later listens over time. It's kind of like you're like, huh, oh, yeah, huh. And it's like these like Mm -hmm. it's the chord voicings. It's the the, not even not sluggishness. I wouldn't necessarily call quicksand sluggish, but I think quicksand as a band name really does work to describe what they sound like, because there is like this like you hit the surface and then you kind of (laughs) like fall into it. And I think that's a really, really big shoegaze influence. I think that's where that comes through is there's like this slipperiness and yeah. and squishiness to all, all of the sound of quicksand. But I mean, especially in the guitar
0: yeah.
1: and, and the way the guitar and the voice have these kind of like dissonant harmonies together. I think that's
0: and there's two other influences in here that he notes that I forgot about until just now, which I think harkens back to what you were saying about people noting quicksand as an influence and not hearing it uh, dancing and slayer right? And <laughs> I mean, I don't hear dancing or Slayer at all in this album. Right. <laughs> but it's it's funny when, again, I'm not a musician, so I come at this from like almost like a business perspective. But it's interesting when you think about psychology and art. So, you know, when you're a musician, the stuff that you're listening to at any given time, you know, that, that's in your mind, it's in your brain, right? And like, You know, if you're driving around or riding around your bike listening to Slayer tunes and and dancing or whatever, you don't even understand like how that formulates into your writing without, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not trying to copy a riff. I'm not trying to make something that sounds like Slayer, but it changes your way of thinking when you're creating the art. And, um, you know, it's fascinating to think about and you know, with this record again, I think you could easily say, okay, Fagazi was doing something similar at the time, but with slip, you know, there was no other record that sounded like that. Um, you know, I think you could maybe argue helmet, you know, was, uh, in the same ballpark, but they were coming more from like the metal scene. And I think you can hear that. And so, you know, I, I think that like the guys from quicksand are all, um, modest enough to say you know we weren't visionaries or anything like that they were just jamming and making music but uh it's incredible to think about in retrospect again 30 years later i mean think about how many bands sound like them now right i mean it's it's almost ridiculous you know to kind of create a new genre from from a single album
2: yeah the the influence of quicksand has definitely reverberated especially in the i feel like in the last decade plus there is the the people who were probably who came through quicksand through the back door of emo versus the door of hardcore like there is like this whole wave of bands that are inspired by quicksand failure and hum like those are the Mm -hmm. three bands that they cite as their major influences and there were there's dozens of those bands at this point and they all personally i don't think any of them really come close to nailing (laughs) it (laughs) but it is interesting how those three bands kind of got lumped together as this uh that's what everyone wanted to do for almost a decade now yeah whereas with quicksand they fit more with a helmet and a fugazi like they're like the middle ground between helmet and fugazi
0: i think i think it's worth noting that this was not a big record it was on a major label but yeah. by major label standards it was a flop yeah uh, you know and you know, they were lucky to get to releases on Majors and um, have a lot of really incredible opportunities. But let's talk about the two tours they did in 93. <laughs> right. The first slip tour was with Anthrax and Wade Zombie. <laughs> That's and, bonkers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I will say like Scott Ian from Anthrax wrote a big section of the book and he talks about Why he chose Quicksand to come on that tour? Because Anthrax was, you know, they were pretty notable band at the time. I mean, they were, God, maybe not as big as Metallica, but they were, you know, a close second at least in thrash metal. You know, was concerned for that time period, and you know, Scott and the rest of the guys from uh, Anthrax. I mean, they they came up in New York hardcore too, right? That's their that's their world. They weren't in hardcore bands, but they were going to shows and they were, you know. Um, a big part of that scene and they truly loved quicksand, you know, and they wanted to watch them play live every single night and the booking agents and the promoters told them, no, they have to take a, a bigger band or they have to take a, you know, someone that's, um, more metal or more, you know, white zombie ish. I don't know. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to take quicksand cause that's who we want. And they finally gave in. They took them on that tour, and I'm sure Quicksand picked up fans. I mean, but you know, you could easily see how different they were on that bill. Um, I can't imagine
2: that, like Rob Zombie standing on the side of the stage watching Quicksand play. Like, <laughs> but <laughs> it had to have happened.
0: White Zombie wasn't wasn't that big back then. I mean, yeah. I, I I forget what year White Zombie broke, but I think it was a year or two later. Um, yeah. yeah. And. Uh, the second tour they did was with Rage Against the Machine, which right? I
2: think is a more fitting bill, but also still very, very different
0: yeah. energies. And you know, it goes back, right? I mean, Zach was in Inside Out, right? So, yeah, Quicksand played, or Quicksand played Inside Out's first show, or vice versa. <laughs> I feel like I should know the the facts here, but no, quick. Uh, quicksand opened for inside out in one of their first shows but uh you know the the folks from or zach and you know the rage against the machine folks like they they were good friends with quicksand and in a very similar way they were trying to pay it forward you know where quicksand and inside out were coming up alongside each other you know in the early 90s zach started rage and you know he kind of paid back quicksand and said now we'll you know it's our turn to take you out on tour but again, you know, I think Rage at that time, I mean, they were almost resonating more with like the Cypress Hill crowd, you know, and like it, this very a different sort of, um, you know, uh, musical background. And, you know, I I think it's really cool, but I, I, I often wonder, like, you know, who does quicksand tour with, you know, if we go back in time to ninety three. Like what? What tour would have made sense for them? I don't know that it would have existed, other than like Fagazi, you know. Or uh,
2: they also famously did a tour with The Offspring, and that again is
0: another one yeah. that
2: is just like, huh? I guess it's a major yeah. labels being like, let's do something with these bands that <laughs> we don't know what to do with. And
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, it's cool. I mean, that was the 90s, right? Like you had you know bands that didn't fit together playing you know bills all the time. But I think on a major label stage, it's a completely different game. Um, yeah. you know, and you know, one of the other iodine artists, Jonah Matranga, you know, he was in FAR, and we often talk about like, you know, when, when Water and Solutions came out, they were on tour with um Korn and uh huh. what's that band? Uh System of a Down, right? And like <laughs> they'd get up on stage singing these like emo-ish songs, and like kids were like, What the fuck is this shit? You know. <laughs> And like the label drops them because they're a failure, this and that, you know, and it's like, well, put them on tours that make sense. Don't, you know, these major label tours often just like were so bizarre. It was just like, OK, okay like, you know, you're going to go out with the other label artists regardless of what they sound like. Um, yeah. And I'm not but, saying that happened to quicksand. I just think that, you know, it's um, it's it's just funny how how the majors thought back then.
1: But they're looking at it like, well, these bands yell, so they go together. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah yeah genius is such a
1: there's such a huge yeah. difference between like the kinds of yelling <laughs> that they're doing yeah. or what they're yelling over
0: yeah yeah <laughs>
2: Talk a little about the actual music on the record because it is this very new sounding thing to nineteen ninety three ears. Like if you put it in with the context of the rest of the bands from that that year, there's not a ton of similarities other than loud, heavy, you know, like that kind of thing. There is this. They took the elements of hardcore, like the big riffs, and Slowed them down a lot, but to, not to make the songs, you know, slow, slow songs, you know, but just this, like, okay, if we don't, if we take these type of riffs that we've been playing for, what, 10 years of our lives or more at this point, and then put them in a different context of, like, we're not trying to play as fast as possible. So let's throw in this, like, really unique bass work and these really cool, like, booming, like, tom fills and, like, do this crazy guitar thing that you you you're lifting uh, an effect from you know kevin shields you know and just mix it all together in this way that's like it's not quite hardcore it's not quite whatever became alternative metal which you can argue they probably helped define that sound but it's just a really cool unique and original sounding album in a way that just like it it knocks you out with phaser like the first track on the record just grooves incredibly
0: and i'm glad to use that word because i think that what they brought to the table was groove right mm-hmm. and like they showcase their abilities and knowledge of how to work the instrument and that is what differs and I'm i'm not knocking any hardcore band right so i hope no uh old school hardcore heads come to my house to beat me up but like (laughs) you know i think when you look at a band like judge or you know um even gorilla biscuits like these kids were they were so young and like just like most punk rock from that era it's like they didn't know their instruments right and they're playing very simple power chords and things like that and um when quicksand you know made this album they were really showcasing like yes like we like the heaviness, we like the aggressiveness, but we can play, and we can play really well. And you know, I, I don't know that there was a lot of people coming out of the hardcore scene at that time, that that had the technical knowledge, you know, in their instruments that that the guys in Quicksand did.
2: Focusing again on the groove too, like we mentioned Helmet earlier, and then I I was just thinking too, I was like, there's a couple other New York bands that are very heavy and loud, and they have big grooves, and it was like, yes, we have. We have Quicksand, we have Helmet, we also have Unsane, who I think have a very strong groove in their music, and we even have Prong, who are like one of the co-inventors of like groove metal, and even White Zombie is from New York, and they also have a very strong groove. There's a very interesting like New York hard heavy bands having a groove to it that I didn't ever connect until just thinking about this record, which... It's a strange connection for all of those bands.
0: <laughs> and it, But it's interesting, too, because I think every band you just named came at it from a different starting point. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that it's interesting. I never thought about this until you said this. But, like, that that was the end point, right? That, like, um, a band like Helmet, right? You, you start with uh, traditional metal music. You slow it down and you... You know, you get into this groove and I mean, maybe that was just sort of the, the thing, you know, it's like, OK, if we're going to showcase what we can do, this is this is where you go. This is the next logical step. Same thing with hardcore. You got to slow it down. You got to hear hear what we can do. Otherwise, it's just a wall of noise.
1: I think I think that what quicksand does that's revelatory is that they are they're taking a level of experience and musicianship from just really practicing and playing for a long time and then they're coming from hardcore and they're slowing it they're slowing it down just enough to really emphasize what the rhythm is doing in hardcore and and laying into that and really timing everything really well like they just have that that practice and that precision to be able to just have it hit with an impact even without it being what they would have done earlier as younger kids of being like, "We got to play it fast. Mm-hmm. and and it gives it a sense of like it's not technicality in like uh, you know, like what prong would be like the kind of like the smart uh, technical metal version of that is, but it's it's technicality in the sense of being really, really on time and really in lockstep with each other. like it's a it's a band, It's an ensemble. It's everyone playing together really, really well. Uh, and they're doing that with hardcore and kind of filtering it through some, you know, other influences. And and I think that Walter brings a, a melodic sensibility to it, too, that makes these songs singable without necessarily... It's like it's not pop and it's not polished and it's not slick and clean, but it's you can hum it, you can sing it, and these tunes come back to you which is not which is not necessarily not to not to say that there aren't memorable fugazi songs but you wouldn't necessarily call fugazi melodic especially not at this point or at least not up to this point not super melodic not in the same way
0: yeah i think that fugazi probably started there and then moved more into like the art rock yeah. world you know and you know there's a lot more dissonance in their later music and you know more experiment experimentation in what can we do with sound and how can we you know shape it around the structure of a song. Um but you know yes later Fugazi albums did not have like the hook chorus breakdown <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> you know, and and I like that quicksand preserved that right I mean they they took the best parts of hardcore. And brought it to this new thing, which we can't call anything else except post hardcore, because, you know, where are we? Right? But, you know, and I think that, you know, that's the thing that you don't see in helmet. You don't see it in prong, right? The, you know, the the sort of the structure that really draws us in to hardcore music in general, right? Like you you want certain elements that that just, you know, you attach to especially the breakdowns especially the choruses and you know i like helmet but i i feel like helmet you know it, it it's almost acquired listening <laughs> for a lot of people because you know the it's very repetitive and kind of kind of has this sort of uh formula to it that you know again it it's more resonant of like metal music you know from the from the late 80s and stuff like that
2: yeah there's um a l- yeah, I'd say the helmet's probably harder to get into than, than quicksand. I, and The one thing I would say about, like, helmet and, like, like prong... I don't, it's funny the prong keeps going up now. But, like, the thing that I think of... because
0: We could use clutch. I mean, I feel like they're almost parallel yeah, at the same yeah, time. They're yeah, they're on that
2: same yeah. lane, yeah. <laughs> prong just fell off so much. I think that's why people kind of forgot how good they actually were at one point. But, uh, anyway, the the feature the helmet prong have is that like they just like oh they just rip like that's cool they rip like that's awesome what they do and then with quicksand it feels a little more deeper than it rips like it, you feel it kind of more it's it's not surface level just like man this is this is hard you know like it definitely cuts through just being like i put this on cuz it rocks quick
1: quicksand have more parts to their songs that go beyond that's a sick riff like they have <laughs> they have parts where it's like that's really pretty that's really interesting
0: mm-hmm. yeah you
1: know th- that's think, a satisfying breakdown
0: <laughs> yeah and i think that's the difference with a helmet like i feel like if you put on a helmet song i could tell you exactly where it's going to go right yeah. and um it's predictable and I, again i don't want a short helmet i you know <laughs> i like helmet but if you've never heard a quicksand song, right? If you've never heard head to wall, if you've never heard um uh dine alone, when it comes on, you think you know where it's going to go, but then they throw in these parts that are really unexpected and that that's what set it apart, you know, and that's what made it um really stand out from a lot of other albums of that era. And they continue, like we're still talking about it 30 years later. And I, and I would argue that there's few records at least that came from you know the quote-unquote scene that are talked about as much as this record
2: so dylan do you have any standout tracks on the record that really hit you because i have a couple myself
0: that's a tough question um (laughs) (laughs) i why don't you start and i'll i'll uh let me meditate on this for a second
1: um it starts so strong I mm-hmm. mean, phaser head to wall dine along. I mean, those, those three songs in a row is such a great way to open the record. And that was kind of, that was my, like listening to this record. I'm like, all right, let me like give this a, the most open minded listen I can. And I'm like, shit, I know this one. So I like, I already know this one so well, like I'm not having to relearn it. I'm like, I know what's coming next. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm like, I've definitely absorbed way more of this record than I, uh, remember historically um i really really like freezing process yeah that was really good um freezing process might actually be my favorite
0: i think omission is what always hit me the hardest um looking at the track list i i always liked the seven inch version but you know and the fans of the seven inch are gonna hate me for saying this but i always felt like it felt flat you know it didn't it didn't hit as hard as the album version, and you know when that bass comes in. I mean, I just it it takes over. I mean, I, I God, when I was in a band, I wish that I could have written a song that you know is that powerful. Um, and also Baphomet, which is an instrumental, but you know, again, it it <clears throat> I think it shows sort of like the range that the band had, and it's it's such a catchy track.
2: I uh, I love Phaser. That's probably my number one favorite song on the whole record. But then, if I had to choose a number two, I'd probably go with "Lie and Wait," which is kind of right. At, it's right after "Freezing Process," and it's just this like big, really big, loud, and it's kind of fast for them. He does these like kind of reverby vocals on it too. And when I was listening to it, I was like, "This this could have been a single," because I did look at all the singles and like watched all the music videos, and I was like, "Huh." they sure did pick four songs off this record. (laughs) And it was just like, I don't know why they were like, we're going to make four music videos for this album. We need to get our money back somehow. But, and they're all like roughly very similar. It's just a performance video for the most part of all of them. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, you could pick any record on any song on this record and put it out as a single. And I don't think it's going to be the summertime hit that uh, you'd want it to be.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is surprising that a major put this out in 93, especially seems odd. But then they they held on and like they're on island for the next record for Manic Compression. And it's like, yep, we're still we're still trying to make quicksand a thing mainstream.
0: Although I'm going to argue with that point, if you don't mind. Go ahead. It actually makes perfect sense because with Nirvana's Nevermind, which was 92, if I'm not mistaken, um, it changed the landscape of rock music forever right i mean prior to 92 it was hair bands like hair metal right i mean yeah guns and roses and poison and stuff like that and with nirvana coming on the scene and like the the massive commercial success they had every major was clamoring for new bands and again when we when we ran through that list of you know some of the notable records that came out in 93 you go a year before, a year after, it makes perfect sense because it was this rat race. And, and no one knew what was going to be big. No one knew what was going to be popular. But no one expected Nirvana to do what they did, right? And so, you know, anything that was new and different and and, and unique sounding, majors were just going crazy for. I mean, they they, they handed out contracts like candy. <laughs> um it didn't mean you were going to be successful. I mean, and honestly, like the, the secret to major labels, I'll tell you right now, because I, I deal with them every every once in a while. It's a numbers game. They're like, if we sign X number of bands, uh, if we sign 100 bands, one of them will be popular just by sheer numbers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the rest of them are going to be tax write offs. And once we find that <laughs> successful band, we're just going to dump tons and tons and tons of money into it until it's famous and everyone else we're going to tear up the contracts and not exercise our options you know or
2: shelve their albums for years and not let
0: them sh- be yeah, released. exactly but that- i i absolutely think that like quicksand was ripe in that era and they were following suit right after nirvana's nevermind that you know and again we don't have to sit here and list off all the bands that got signed in 93 but um you know, you're a year or two later, you see, again, just this wave of bands that you would not expect to be on majors, you know. with Shudder to
2: Think use. on Sony is my number one, like, yeah. what?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: What AR guy was like, Shudder to Think's gonna be the one? Okay, I guess they were I don't thinking... think
0: they cared. I think it was <laughs> like scouts were out in the field and they were just like scooping up bands left and right. I mean... Yeah it was it was insane and um yeah I, it's it's crazy to think about but like the, it again it was a dynamic shift in how people thought about music it you know post nirvana era and i know a lot of people talk about this and like it, it's been beat to death but it it is the absolute reality and it's it's rel- it's um. You know, it shows when we look at bands like Quicksand or we look at a band like Seaweed and like how they ended up on Majors is like it all goes back to the the post Nirvana era and how yeah. Majors started to think.
1: I, I think Quicksand on Island in 95 makes more sense than Quicksand on Polydor in 93. Because uh, hmm. if you look at what Polydor is putting out and they put out like, I mean, they had a P model record, so that's weird. But you know they had van morrison and then like but like island had um pj harvey so that's yeah. pj harvey and quicksand being on the same label makes a lot of sense
2: And oh, that would have been a great bill put them
1: and on that would be a great show
0: yeah <laughs> i'd go to that show <laughs> yeah yeah and i i think it was just again the labels were trying to think into the future and um you know, cl- again, you know, I don't even think it was called classic rock at the time. I mean, that was like the the shifting point, right? Just prior to that, it was just rock music, right? Um, but they knew that, hey, this is this is for boomers, right? Like, this is <laughs> not the future. And so, even though you had bands that didn't seemingly fit on these labels, it's because the labels were trying to think, okay, what's the next wave? What is going to be popular in the next five to ten years and the reality is like in music it music is a fascinating business because literally no one knows right mm. like no one knows what's going to hit and it's always something that you don't expect and how as fans of music how it's perceived again you know it there's no way to predict like what band is going to be popular and why look at turnstile like Who would have guessed a hardcore band would be on billboards across the United States and like uh, playing, uh, you know, massive festivals to, you know, tens of thousands of people? No one, you know, it's at
2: at the Grammys this week in Taco Bell commercials. Like it's just (laughs) wild how how fast turnstile have like blown up over the last year. Really?
0: Yeah. And. You know, no one could have predicted that. I mean, I saw them open for Bane, like, you know, seven or eight years ago, right? And, like, you know, they were, like, the opening band. And
2: I <laughs> um, mean, sure, Bain's people them, them. But like them. Yeah.
0: Um, it's just, it, it's it, music is a fascinating world. And, like, I feel like, you know, there's probably someone who could do their thesis on, like, the psychology of why certain music is popular and why other music that should be popular right isn't and yeah. you know where those things fall in line and again to tie it back to quicksand like from a major label perspective like quicksand slip was a total flop yeah <laughs> right it was not a big record for the, for polydor and just like manic compression was not a big record for island um i mean those albums are tax write-offs for those labels
2: which is funny because if you listen to those records and then you listen to what comes at the later end of the 90s with bands like Deftones or like the multitude of other what you would consider alternative metal bands, like they probably would have fit in perfectly during that era. But also Deftones were were influenced by Quicksand and like maybe maybe some of those other bands from that era were also Quicksand and, you know, influenced by them. And so that's why that sound became so big. in the late 90s like it did
0: i i I have to quote jonah Matranga. i was talking to him once about far and one line drawing and some of the projects that he's been involved with and he said something that always stuck with me which is i was early to the party and i was early to leave (laughs) and (laughs) like you know in a way i think about quicksand the same way it's like okay they came up with this this sound that was unique and um no one had really ever done before, but they kind of left the game right before that sound got big. Like you're saying, you know, Deftones was influenced by Quicksand. Mm-hmm. They were influenced by FAR, you know, and yeah. um, I could easily see Quicksand supporting Deftones over Anthrax, you know, yeah. um, or White Zombie or even Rage Against the Machine. I mean, yes, I think Quicksand and Rage work. But when you think about fans of Rage, I don't think quicksand fans. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. that's um, so, you know, had they hung on a few more years, maybe something different would have come out. I have no idea.
2: Well, uh, the interesting thing. So, yeah, the band breaks up in 95 after Manic Compression* comes out. Walter goes on and plays in Civ. Tom joins, you know, starts Handsome. Alan joins Seaweed. And then they attempt a reunion in uh, 98. They play some shows, but that's the, that's the pocket. That's the time period where it's like, this is it. This is where it should have worked. But I think it was the interpersonal stuff that like, that's the reason why that reunion didn't work out for them. And it's like, they could have been right there. You know, maybe if there was a label interested at that point, they maybe would have put something out that could have made it work. But I don't think, I think it was too short lived to do anything.
0: Yeah. And I think some of these things, it's got to be right place, right time, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, you know, Could they have written Manic Compression or Slip in 98? Probably not, right? It was like whatever was in their lives, whatever influences they brought to the table, it was a snapshot in time that that album could not have been written in the same way in any other time period. On that same note, like had either of those albums come out later, it would have been completely different reception and we have no idea where it could have gone. Right. And these games are kind of fun to play because, you know, had it come out the same year as, uh, you know, Deftones were starting to break. It could have been huge. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. they could have been on tour three 11 and Deftones and like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> been this massive, you know, behemoth, but, um, it's like, they were just like a little bit too early and people weren't ready for it on a, on a massive scale on a, like on a grand scale.
2: Yeah. But yeah, you're right, though, because ultimately it became this massively influential record for the next 20 years. You know, the 2000 to 2023, like you're getting tons of bands influenced by Quicksand and it was a delayed reaction. But like 30 years later, it's it's still an important album, like massively.
1: 30 years later, you know, if this if Quicksand hadn't put out Slip, I don't think Turnstile would be on the Grammys i mean
2: right you know it's that kind of
0: oh for sure not I, I know for a fact that they have noted quicksand as being a massive influence for them yeah. i think they even had a split t-shirt with quicksand for uh, <laughs> a show they played together in uh uh like 2007 or 2008 thereabouts um but uh yeah I, I think that it's interesting because even though this album holds so much influence for so many artists it still really has a stake in underground music, right? Like it, it never really broke the mainstream. Like if you go to fans of heavy music, you know, I'm not, and I'm talking like, you know, fans of your major label, heavy music, people won't remember quicksand, you know, even rage against the machine or anthrax or white zombie, all these bands that we've been talking about helmet. um, It may be a band that they remember hearing about, but it doesn't hold that same stake that it does in the scene. I think that's the coolest thing is that it has stayed such an important record and I know it transcends the scene. So I'm not saying it's still trapped in our small world, but because of, you know, the time period that it came out, it, it, it's almost held in this like regard as like one of the greats of underground music, you know, and you know, you don't, you don't hear Rolling Stone and stuff talk about this record because, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, I don't want to say it's forgotten about, but it's just it never really hit that mark. Does that make sense? I, I don't know if I'm...
2: No, no. It, well, because it doesn't really resonate with that more mainstream rock type fan. I don't think that... I could see a Deftones band it resonating with them because they've always got the, they got the uh, smart rap metal band they got to stick around, but like, <laughs> I don't think a white zombie or a Rob Zombie fan's like... This quicksand record really resonates with me, you know, typically, you know, the person who that's their main interest. But but yeah, I think that's a good place to end because we've been going for almost two hours. So
0: <laughs> Has it been that long? Oh my God.
2: <laughs> so Casey, thank you so much for joining us on the show and talking about this huge record. And uh, it's incredible that you got to do this. Amazing project.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And, um, you know, I, I want to thank anyone who's really you know, shown support for the label and this project, because for me, it's really about the passion and about, you know, presenting this in a way that people will be excited for. So um, I hope I don't let anyone down. That's, uh, that's my number one goal.
2: (laughs) And I'll have links in the show notes to all, all the good stuff out there for everyone to click on. So thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you later.
0: All right. Be well, gentlemen.